You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, hello, everybody. It's great to be here. So welcome to tonight's program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club San Francisco. I am the Reverend Cynthia Carter Pirelliot, the Executive Director of the Alameda County Care Alliance. Won't you join me tonight in welcoming our wonderful speakers, Shoshana Berger and Dr. B.J. Miller. (laughs) Shoshana serves as Editorial Director at Global Design and Consulting Company, IDEO. And I love this about Shoshana because in the book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, Shoshana shares her experience as a caregiver with her beloved father as he navigated a condition on the spectrum of dementia at the end of life. She's also written on Wired, Spin, and the New York Times. BJ, he is a hospice and palliative care specialist at the University of California, San Francisco, where he treats hospitalized patients with terminal or life-altering illnesses. Dr. BJ suffered a major injury in college which resulted in the amputation of both his legs, below the knee, and one of his arms. He started telling his story, as well as his thoughts on matters at the end of life, on the infamous TED Talk video, Mm -hmm. which has been viewed now over nine million times. So tonight we're celebrating their wonderful new book, A Beginner's Guide at the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. Now, in my opinion, this is a tremendously special book. And the reason I say it's special because it literally is a user's guide, a manual on how to tackle some of the toughest issues that arise at this important phase of life. And I like to quote both Shoshana and BJ. They say it's a bold and beautiful vision of how to make life, the life that we currently have, folks, more meaningful by taking an active role in designing the life we have now. I want to say, can I get an amen? (laughs) (laughs) Tremendously important. Did you get an amen? (laughs) (laughs) We got to work on this audience, right? (laughs) So Shoshana, BJ, I have to start by trying to get an understanding. First of all, how did the two of you meet? And what really facilitated the collaboration of this book? Well, I met BJ three months after the death of my father. And it was a really important time for me to meet BJ because the wound was still fresh. I was still in the thick of grief. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to make sense of the experience I had just had. And as you said so beautifully, he has a very bold and profound vision for how to shift that experience at the end of life. And I really needed that right then. Um, my, my sister and I had just been caregivers to my father. My sister should be here tonight. Is she here? Maya, hello. <laughs> um, and we were utterly clueless about how to navigate that phase of life. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had no idea how to talk to his doctors, what care we could expect, how to navigate the hospital, uh, insurance, his new wife, who who was difficult at times. So, (laughs) not sure how much to say about that. Is she here tonight? She is not here tonight. (laughs) (laughs) She would not be here tonight. Yeah. My my mother is. My actual mother. All right. (laughs) So, so, you know, we were so clueless that on the morning my father died, we sat at the computer in the room where he lay cold and Googled, what do you do after someone dies? Mm. We, We didn't even know to call the funeral home. 
And I thought to myself, if someone like me who speaks English as a native language and has a graduate degree cannot figure this out, there must be a lot of people who need help with this. And I think the problem is, is that we don't talk about it in this culture. You know, we, we, we are under the impression that death might be optional because if we <laughs> walk 10,000 steps a day and eat kale, we're going to be fine. Um, and so I think a lot of us are enrolled in an involuntary crash course. Um, and so I, I, I thought, okay, this man can help me redeem the experience I just had because he can help me do something to help other people through what can be a profoundly difficult experience. Wow. Amazing. So your backgrounds really are, are pretty different. BJ, you're a doctor, you give care inside the medical world, and Shoshana, you've been a caregiver, obviously, outside of medicine. So we've heard your story, Shoshana. BJ? Mm-hmm. How did your personal experience shape your approach to this book? Um, you know, it's way, I think, way more the personal experience than the professional ones in some way. I mean, the whole reason I got into medicine was because of my injuries and my experience as a patient. The whole idea that these were experiences um, not to overcome or put behind us or somehow forget or move beyond, but actually that became part of the fabric of a life. That loss was part of the fabric of a life, of a normal life. And mm. kind of trying to make sense of, well, definitely trying to make sense of my own experience is what pushed me to medicine. And then in medicine, uh, I was going to drop out of medicine altogether. Um, and like as happens when you're trying to reconcile the ideals you go into medicine with and then the, the realities of practicing medicine. Uh, it's a, that's a big cliff. So anyway, I was going to drop out of it, and then I stumbled onto palliative care and fell in love with mm. it pretty much instantaneously. It was everything I was kind of hoping for. The idea that, uh, like I mentioned, that loss is normal, that it's something that drives meaning, and it, it helps us appreciate beauty and all that stuff. So that's where I've been working from. And then the sort of going to medical school is to find some tricks to sort of <laughs> in a way in with people. But the book and all the experience, uh, the book is much more drawn from a personal life than it is a professional one, I think. Sure, sure. And you have to tell the story now. Oh, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> so for those of you guys who don't know, so I, I was a sophomore in college. I was 19. Mm-hmm. And screwing around on a, this was out in New Jersey, and the commuter trains run with the wires overhead, much like the, the buses here in San Francisco. And I just happened to scurry up on top. We, we, we climbed. It was just parked. It was just sitting there. It was not a, did not feel like a very daring thing to do. But we scurried up on the ladder on, on top of the train, and I, um, I had a metal watch on. And when I stood up, the electricity arced to the watch and entered the arm and down and out the feet. Um, and that was that. So it was very much an instant. I mean, it was, it was an instant. But then there was a, in the hospital for months with... And the amputations were uh, sequential over time, over weeks and months. Um, yeah, that's the basic gist of the story. Mm. <laughs> we got so much more to talk about, so I'll keep it at that. Wow. See how he was trying to get out of telling that story? <laughs> I think too many of you guys already know it. I'm, I'm assuming <laughs> you guys are bored with it, but anyway. <laughs> no, never. Hmm. Such an inspiration. Such an inspiration, both of you. So this whole end-of-life thing is pretty big deal. I mean, it's, it's really challenging to contemplate. Um, the work that we do in the communities is trying to bridge health systems with community members. So medical, I hate to say versus, because we're not mm. against each other, we need each other. Mm. But it's two different worlds. And so what do you all say should we exactly be thinking about as it relates to end of life, advanced illness, serious chronic illnesses? Wow, it's a big question, and there's a lot to think about. Um, I always like to get to the very personal thing first, which is, are you just showing up in your life? You know, are you putting down your phone and looking the person you're talking to in the eye or Mm -hmm. saying goodbye like you really mean it? Because none of us ever really know, you know? So just the being able to show up and be present in your life, I think, is is a big reason why we wrote this book, because we want people to think through these issues. 
But there's also a lot of a lot of messes that we humans tend to leave behind. Uh, we leave behind a material mess, and then we leave behind an emotional mess. And the material stuff, in a way, is easier. You know, a lot of us have homes full of stuff that we accumulate over a lifetime, and we hold on to it. But the fact is, is that the people who love us then have to go through it after we're gone, and that can be a really painful exercise. I did that in my dad, Maya and I did that in our dad's house. Um, so why are you holding on to all that stuff? The, the Swedes actually have a word for death cleaning. It's like dostadning or something like that. Um, and, and they actually, as they age, go through this process of just kind of looking through everything they've accumulated and thinking through, what can I, what can I lose and get rid of bef- before I leave this earth? Um, and the other material messes is that, you know, just our paperwork and our, our stuff is everywhere. So, you know, does anyone in your life have access to your passwords? Can they access your computer and your phone? So if you die, they can, you know, help shut down your life. All of those things we just don't think about. Um, and then there's the more important stuff, which is the emotional mess. And um, that's a little bit more difficult to sort through. But when you think about it, if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, would you still be holding on to those grudges? Would you Have you healed the old wounds with people that you love in your life? Mm-hmm. What would your regrets be if you knew that you were going? Um, and working through some of that stuff is so important. We have a friend, Ira Bayak, a palliative care physician, who has this a beautiful framework he uses called the four things that matter most to say to someone before you go. And they are, please forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, and I love you. And saying those things can really unburden the people who love you. And we actually interviewed Ira for the book and we asked him, is there anything else since you published that book that you would add to that list of four things? And he said, actually there is. I have, I've talked to 60-year-old men who are still carrying around grief that their parent never said to them, I'm so proud of you. And the, the incredible importance of words um, and just saying that to someone, they carry that forward throughout life. So think about, think about how you can give people that gift. Mm. Love it. <laughs> CJ? Yes. What are your thoughts around that question? It's a big thing to contemplate. Mm-hmm. What would you say we need to be thinking about? Well, f- so, and part of, the, part of the dance that Shoshana and I have been doing is, is, uh, is finding our, the compliments in the way we approach things and different pieces of the book uh, come from different pieces of us. But for me, so I kind of quickly go um, to the sort of not so obviously practical things. Like I love sort of I, the framework of it. It's, I think it's, I think my answer to your question is, I think we just have to kind of come to terms with the fact that we do in fact die. Like that's start there, you know, start the, with the idea that time is precious and other things flow from that. I think what's normal, especially these days, it's, I don't know, there's been a time in history where it's been easier to be distracted. I mean, we're just, so many things pulling us away from our basic nature, um, so many things that eat up our time. So it actually is a real thing to remind yourself that time is precious, that you're not here forever, and not in this body anyway. So for me, it just really kind of flows from that. And once you, once you wrap your head around that, or at least practice wrapping your head around that, um, then all of a sudden, you know, it's a little easier perhaps to forgive each other and yourself. You know, all of a sudden, as you and I've talked, Sin, about, you know, then all of a sudden you realize how much you have in common with everybody on the planet and everyone who has ever lived. That the fact that we are mortal and we have to know that we're mortal, that that is a, that is a, a real bond between humans. And so then, therefore, compassion flows and kindness flows much more easily. And for me, like my, you know, a, 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 what I love about it is, the fact that time is short or precious compels me to try, compels me to get past my fear. And it also, so that's great, gets me to try things. And it also softens the blow if I, if I fail. 
because it's not like, as Shosh pointed out, it's not like if you get the lock and the key just so, and you, you, you get a pass and you get to live forever. That's not, that's not on the table. That's not the math. So no matter what you do, the end is sort of set. So it's really all about how you get there. And then failure loses its, its, its grip, at least for me, does. Mm. I love BJ's phrase, you can't fail at death. Like, this is the one thing we can't fail <laughs> yeah. at. Which I don't, but yeah, which I really find really useful. I mean, honestly, really super useful. Because I don't like failing very much. I don't know that anyone does. But it's something I think that practicing it is actually pretty useful. Pretty. Um, but it is very nice to know that I'm not going to screw up dying. <laughs> and and it's actually a good, a good point, Shosh, about the book. Like, there's kind of a couple messages in the book. One is reassurance, you know, that we've been doing this a long time, that there's something in us that knows how to die. You know, and on some level, we have to kind of get out of the way of ourselves. And there's all sorts of things that we've injected into the mix through our systems and that are not particularly intuitive and actually do require some planning. You kind of can't just let uh, Mother Nature get you there. So there's sort of two messages on that point. Absolutely. I don't know about you all, but I am really impressed with this audience and the size and the response of, as it relates to this incredible subject matter. Of course, here in the United States, folks don't really like to talk about death. Mm. But here we are, talking about a subject that's tremendously important, but I love the fact that both of you embrace life and facing living life to the fullest and living life with purpose and meaning and intentionality. I think that says so much about both of you that is tremendous. And and it really brings me to my next question because I am thoroughly impressed with the fact that both of you bring not only your personal, but also your professional perspectives as it relates to life and living and meaning and this whole life issue of dying. What I'd like to know is that what are your thoughts about individual preferences as it relates to race and spirituality and Mm. topics uh, around this subject for folks that don't look like you or don't have the backgrounds that you folks do? Why would someone of a different background be interested Mm. in reading your book? That's a really good question. Well, I would first say that, you know, this truly is our one universal experience. I mean, all of us are going to the same place, regardless of race or creed. Um, In that way, it really unites us. But, you know, there are a lot of cultural differences um, in terms of how people think about death and think about medicine and the healthcare industry. You know, we know that there's a lot of mistrust in some cultures and um, of, of medicine, of doctors, and a feeling that there's still very strong institutionalized racism. And I know that can make a difference Absolutely. in terms of especially electing hospice, and BJ can speak a lot more to this. So those things are real, yes. and we don't want to underplay those things. Um, but we do hope that the advice we give in the book is really for everyone, because it's about being a human being and how you face mortality as a human being, uh, regardless of what you look like and what you believe. Mm -hmm. And BJ and I are both pretty enthusiastic agnostics. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we... (laughs) Got one applause. (laughs) Hey, can I get an amen? (laughs) Thank you. That's nice. Um, but, you know, that, that doesn't mean that we are not spiritual in our own ways, and we, we actually wanted to hold a lot of space for people who, for whom their faith and their spirituality is key in this conversation. I mean, certainly I can say that when my dad died, I felt great relief going back to my Jewish community and saying Kaddish for him, which is the prayer for the dead, and just feeling held by that community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also carrying that forward. You know, I think that you... I'm married to a Catholic, so, so I'm going to be the person who's going to carry that tradition forward in our family, and that's my bloodline. And I did feel this sense of kind of... just that, that, that connection to generations past and generations forward and how... When one person dies, you carry forward the values and the beliefs. And mm. I try not to cry on stage here, but that <laughs> became really important to me. That's beautiful. 
Yeah, I think you bring a a really important point. I mean, one is to acknowledge, first of all, in the field of hospice and palliative care, and our colleagues here in the room with us, well, look at us. I mean, we're a pretty Caucasian crowd who are sort of self-selecting and leaning into this subject. Um, Hospice world is largely Caucasian. I mean, we've got a long way to go. And uh, the subject you know, it was way more interesting than our medical model would have, than any one race or one culture's viewpoint. I mean, the way the culture's, I mean, the, the, the subject's way more interesting than we've yet done it justice. So one thing we try to do in the book is not, is to be transparent, like you said, Sin, like we, we're not pretending to speak for everybody, but we are trying to speak to universal themes. And for us, one of the challenges in the book was to make space, make room for anything and everyone to, to feel what they need to feel. Um, rather than try to pretend to speak to a particular faith tradition, we speak to the need for faith or, or, or the power of faith. And we're trying to speak to issues that for most of us are the thing that evinces faith in the first place. So try to kind of get underneath it with probably mixed success. And our, another one of our caveats, of course, is it's a beginner's guide to the end. So there's plenty of room for other books and uh, more advanced books. And it really is an invitation. Yeah, with I mean, this the is, intermediate guide. Yeah. And, well, and it's an invitation because everyone should have access point to this subject. This is not, we are not experts and you guys should be learning from us. This is something we're trying to share and make space for more than anything. Mm-hmm. I often say death is a great equalizer. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're all going that direction, no matter what our background, our perspective. Um, and frankly, I, I think it can be the kind of subject, if we really embrace it, that can really bring people together. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about this book for a number of reasons. And one of them, I think, is the opportunity for people across races and backgrounds and generations mm-hmm. and perspectives to say, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm really thrilled about that. So. I want to personally thank you all for the labor of love. It means so much. And I know our audience is going to absolutely love, love, love this book. So my next question is, how can we better support loved ones who are going through chronic illness, hospital stage, hospital stays, particularly when we have non-medical clinical people, again, I have to go back to that issue because it's often in this complicated clinical setting, am I right? You know, mm-hmm. hospital settings, you know, large percentages of people experience the ICU and end of life in hospital settings. While we know people say, 70 some odd percent folks say they'd rather pass away at home. Mm-hmm. But how do we better support our loved ones who are dealing with chronic illnesses and advanced illness? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, um, you know, what I found was the challenge of just showing up and being there mm. for my father and for other people in my life who've been sick. You know, we're so crazed in today's modern world. We're so busy. And um, I remember being at my father's house and thinking, I have a million things tugging on my sleeve. I have hungry kids. I have a sink full of dishes. I have a million things that are calling me from work. And, um, you know, my mind is saying to myself, don't just sit there, do something. And yet when you become a caregiver, that phrase really becomes inverted and it's don't just do something, sit there, you know, Mm. sit with the person who's suffering, bear witness. Um, sometimes just sitting on the couch with my dad and holding hands, completely silently was was the best care mm. that I could provide. And he didn't have any words left. He couldn't communicate anymore. So that was of no use to us. And he had been a very intellectual man. So in a way, there was a new intimacy that opened up between us when I could just sit there with him and hold his hand and keep him from slipping into oblivion alone. So I think people forget that, that people don't need to be fixed necessarily. They don't need solutions. They don't need you to tell them about your aunt who's suffering too, or, you know, like (laughs) people just want to be listened to and, and want someone there. And the other thing is, is that, you know, oftentimes when someone's sick, you'll get a lot of offers for help. Like people will say, just call me if you need anything. 
And the problem with that, of course, is that it shifts the burden of figuring out what they need to the person who's sick or dying, right? So then suddenly, they, on top of their illness, it, they have to figure out what they need and how to delegate that. So we give a lot of um, help in the book about how do you how do you help help be helpful? Um, so you know how do you like choose someone that can delegate different tasks to caregivers. So if you have 10 friends who've offered help, you want to take advantage of that. But you kind of need to anoint someone to, to be the delegator of that help and to say, okay, you're doing a load of laundry, you're going to get dinner, you know, you're going to drive her to the hospital. Um, and that is a huge relief for the person who, who's really just struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, got, we give lots of tips for that. Cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll answer with a little story. When I, I remember my first, um, I, was in, I was still in rehab, I was in Chicago, I was in the inpatient rehab setting, and I was my first weekend pass home. That's when my parents lived out in suburbia um, of Chicago. And I went home. I was still uh, using, I didn't have prosthetic legs at the time. So I had a wheelchair, one of those big old Everest and Jennings steel tank things. Um, and anyway, I was at home and I was, I thought I was going to be just overjoyed to be home because I had, you know, for obvious reasons maybe. And I found when I got there, I was deep, I was really sad. I mean, it was a, it was a hard visit. Um, and somehow I was, I was acting, I don't know, pissy or moody and somehow my mom at some point my mother said something we kind of got a little heated and my mom said you know this accident happened to us too and I I had an adrenaline surge that <laughs> I had no I did not see coming it was a spontaneous I got out of my chair onto my stumps stood up on my stumps that weren't this is not a comfortable enterprise but I was such I was livid and I literally took my one arm and picked up this steel chair and hucked it across the room. I mean, I scared her. I scared myself. I, hadn't, I did not see that coming. Mm-hmm. And the point is, why I think I had such a reaction was because, of course, mom was right. And I was just trying to deal with my own pain. And here I had to think of, oh, my God, I've hurt other people with this idiot move, too. And, yeah, I needed to, I needed to get there. And my, my mother was the best person to broach that with me. But it was really hard to take in. But my point is, she's right. And I think so. With caregivers and Bridge, you know this. When we talk with patients and families in, in the clinical setting, is I think first and foremost just naming how difficult it is to be a caregiver and to name their pain. I mean, in a hospital, we have we have buildings erected to the patient. There's nothing much for the caregiver. Um, so just. Naming that as I think very helpful, and then beyond there, something that was really driven home for me working at Zen Hospice Project and kind of coming at this from a contemplative route was it was naming what I had felt come to feel as a patient, which was this the reciprocity between caregiving and care receiving. I think it's our language: you're either giving it or receiving it. You're either selfless or you're selfish. You're either taken or you're, you know, that really that's not really accurate that that's an oversimplification and undermines actual joy of caregiving. Mm-hmm. When you can, and one of the moments that was so powerful for me in the hospital was when you're getting sort of cared at and everyone's kind of um, throwing their benevolence at you, which is lovely, <laughs> but you just sort of take it. And <laughs> the, one of the most powerful moments was when a, when a nurse said to me something about how she, what she had learned from my situation, what she had taken herself. She had gained something. It wasn't just her being selfless. That was one of the most therapeutic moments for me to realize, God, it wasn't me just taking. She was getting something too. So looking for the reciprocity that you're not meant to just spend yourself down as an act of love, that actually doesn't really help. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Well said. (laughs) Well said. Wow, you touched on some really important things, both of you. Um, And even in the discussion, I couldn't help but think about, uh, you know, how do you maintain joy? Hmm. 
How do you find joy, first of all, okay, when you're dealing with serious illnesses? And you kind of gave us some insight, BJ, in sharing your personal story and Shoshana as a caregiver for your dad. But I'd like you to speak a little more about joy and hope. And how about even laughter? Mm-hmm. I mean, is it, I, I heard, and I love hearing the audience giggle at certain points that, you know, we've made here. How do you find laughter mm. in the midst of what's tremendously trying? So important. Mm. Um, Yeah, I mean, come on. We need these moments of levity. This is heavy stuff. We heard so many amazing stories in the book from people who just like really found ways to laugh in the most tragic of circumstances. A, A woman we interviewed whose father was dying of congestive heart failure and he was on hospice at home and he was set up on a hospital bed in the living room, and he insisted, this, he was a funny guy, and he insisted that he had a huge nude portrait of his wife hung right above him. <laughs> there we go. So that was just there, like, blazing in the room. And then he also, um, he also insisted on wearing a shirt with a squirrel on it that said, I'm so old I can barely find my nuts. <laughs> uh-huh. So, like, every time his daughter came to, you know, administer something to him or take his, you know, change his catheter bag, there he was sitting there in that squirrel shirt under naked mom. So, I mean, she, she, you had to laugh, and she, and she did, and it was awesome because it brought joy into their life during a very difficult time. Um, other friends who we interviewed for the book, Sarah and Francesca, whose father, Len, was dying of cancer, and they brought him home, and they were taking care of him, and he kind of joined in the fun, and they would leave sticky notes for each other around the house, like, constipated man in his natural environment, and, you know, they would just, like, go around and find these weird jokes around the house, and... And it was just these little subtle moments that, that allowed them to acknowledge that they were all in this shit together and they had to just laugh and sometimes when, when, they, when they couldn't cry anymore. Yeah. Wow. I think, yeah, that... And maybe it's over, it may not work for you. Some of these are sort of... I can imagine rolling some eyes, but I, I do feel like... In a way, pain, if, if it doesn't, it, I, for me, it's pain sets you up to feel joy, or maybe better said, it, it sets up the need for joy. Like, it's really essential. It's not a recreational thing on the side. It's really mm-hmm. essential. And in a way, when you're getting sick and your life's falling apart, you're, everything's just blowing up. And that can have, and there's some real absurdity, absurdity to that. Um, and I think for all of us, the cue is... Um, so I say one answer I think is that this sort of backdrop is exactly what makes joy pop is the foil. Um, so yeah, I guess there's more to say that, but I'll, I'll stop because there's more. <laughs> we'll come back to that another time. Okay, <laughs> gotta hear it. This is is really um, I think a tremendously important topic as it relates to uh, this subject, and that has to do with caregivers. Um, and you've mentioned it, um, both Shoshana and, and BJ. You know, caregiver burden is really real. Mm-hmm. Um, having been a caregiver as well for uh, my dad and helped with my brother, uh, oldest brother, who actually passed away about a year ago, almost today. Mm. Um, you know, this whole feeling of being overwhelmed and you're feeling overworked. Um, and literally forgetting your own needs mm-hmm. because you're so interested in the well-being of that person that you care about and that you love. So, so what's the most important thing for families and caregivers as, as it relates to your own personal experiences and what you see every day? What should they do in really helping themselves through the process? Yeah, that's it's such a great question. I mean, there are 40 million caregivers in America alone, and it's an invisible workforce. And 
They suffer with, you know, emotional burden. They suffer physical burdens of just like getting sick and having a higher morbidity rate themselves because the work is so hard. Mm -hmm. They have an opportunity cost of having to drop out of the workforce and losing, you know, money when they desperately need money to help get more help. So it is a massive problem, a massive systems design problem, I would say, in this country. Um, And, you know, it's so interesting that, like, we confer so much dignity upon caregivers who are taking care of newborns, right? Like, parents have the most honorable and beautiful job raising these completely dependent infants, And we see that as a beautiful service, and we give people leave, and we give them space to do that. And yet, at the other end of life, it just becomes this invisible service. You know, both the person who dies becomes invisible because they're no longer productive, Mm -hmm. and the person who's taking care of that person is invisible. So that really needs to shift, and we need to do a lot of work on that. I'm hoping... um, my company, IDEO, can, can help with this, but there are a lot of people out there who are thinking about this, um, about how we solve this profound systems problem for caregivers. Thank you. EJ, thoughts? Well, I like to just, I feel like I'm just in the mood to just name, state the obvious. So like, I think there's, any caregiver in the audience will know, I think the, the job... Um, in part or in large part, particularly because of the systems issues you brought, Shosh, is this, maybe core to the work, uh, is activism or advocacy. And I think that's a really important thing to name because you are going to be, it, you're going to be bumping up against all sorts of things, nature-made sufferings, but all these inane man-made sufferings. And it's, it's, it's crazy-making and it's consuming. Um, and I think it's really powerful or important to name this idea that you're an advocate or a, even an activist because you are, you know, you are keeping the gate. You are trying to change something. You're trying to change a situation that without you there would be much worse. So naming that also helps us at the end of the day to be like to, to sort of take some pride in all that you're actually trying to do. It's really thankless work. It's unending work. Um, it's unsatisfying that way. There's not really much closure to it. But at least you have a frame for yourself. And I think that activism framework actually helps and kind of puts you in, in, a, in a nice place. So I'm going to dive into something that I saw consistently in this book. And it really opened my eyes. So I'm going straight there, okay? Mm-hmm. Let's do it. All right. When I die, file. <laughs> Where did that come from? Tell me more <laughs> about that. that. Story. What is yeah, what, you tell the that notion story. behind it and what goes in this when I die file? You got to help us out on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, when we conceived of this, I originally called it the if I die file. And DJ turned to me and he's like, if? Really? (laughs) Um, So even I, who am writing this book, have a hard time saying when I die. Um, So yeah, there's that. So the when I die file we see as a really critical piece of preparing. Um, And it gets back to your original question of how we think about the end of life because it's such a big topic. But this gets it really down to brass tacks and really pragmatic stuff. So there's like 20 things you have to put in this file and they're all in the book, but I'll just name a few. Um, And one is your advanced health care directive, which is essential, right? And anyone in this audience who doesn't have one, I hope you leave this conversation and look into it because what it does is it means that if you walk out of here and get hit by a bus and end up in a hospital and can't speak for yourself, you have have, um, enlisted someone as a trusted agent to speak for you someone who can show up at the bedside and help navigate your care. And that is really essential. Um, So that needs to be in there for sure. And then, as I said before, all of your logins and passwords, you know, where do you bank? Where, you know, where did you have your your stuff? That stuff needs to be in there so that your family doesn't have to literally go through your mail 
and figure out, mm. you know, who, what's the name of your lawyer? Who, you know, where did you bank? What subscriptions do you have? What, what, you know, what are your, what do I have to do to file your taxes? There's a million little things that you have to deal with when you're shutting down a life. And it took my sister and I two years to do that for my dad. It's like a full-time job. So that's, that's a huge thing to have in there. And then I'd say a, a, just a softer thing is, um, is there something that you can put in there that really is going to be meaningful to your loved ones to carry forward? So is there like a recipe that your family loved that you cooked all the time that they wouldn't know where to find? Or could you write a letter to the people you love and just say the things that you need to say to them? Those things are things that they will carry forward. And I, I'm actually I'm looking at someone in the front row here named Frisch, um, who is a letter midwife. She's, um, she's someone who actually sits with people who are dying and has them write letters to someone they love. And it is... Um, it was an incredibly profound exercise for me to sit with you, Frisch, and do that. And I ended up writing a letter to my daughter, which is in the book. Um, and, you know, like, she asked me the first question. I'm like, immediately. Uh, it was hard to get through. But um, at the end of it, I was so relieved to have this thing that I could leave for my daughter and know that she would find it and um, mm. and have those words. So... Put that near when I die file, too. So important. So important. So in five minutes, we'll be taking questions from Bruce and Shoshana. And we ask that you please line up at the microphone in the back of the room if you'd like to ask a question. In the meantime, we'll keep talking. How about that? BJ, did you have any comments you want to add about that when I die file? I mean, yeah, you can, it's not, uh, I mean, some of this stuff is really kind of frankly a to-do list. I don't want to, we can't make it sound um, otherwise, but there is also a huge opportunity in this. So you can, you know, you can personalize your funeral. You can, like what music you want played, you know, what burial instructions, there's care and handling instructions in the book. Um, the show's did a beautiful job in this chapter. I mean, like little things like how do you like your coffee? You know, like if you're at your deathbed, how do you want to be treated? How do you want to be positioned in bed? What music do you want playing? All sorts of little wonderful details. So it can be fun to kind of take an inventory of what affects your, what reflects you and affects your experience and get that into the one I die file too. It's mm -hmm. not, it's all, not all drudgery. All right. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> so before we get to the questions from our audience, I wanted to ask, what do you hope readers to take away from this book? Hmm. Mm. Want to start with that one? Mm. I mean, I guess a, a nice sort of simple takeaway is um, a lot of things we've talked about in terms of this subject uniting us and the feel you know, this body's going to die, yes, but life will go on, and as soon as you can sort of dissolve your ego and take pleasure in other people's joys and, and see life outside of yourself, the better you'll do. But I guess in a more simple, pithy way, I would just say, I think the bottom line is that dying doesn't have to be as hard as we fear it to be. Mm. Mm. Yes, and... Um I think what I hope people will take away is that you can actually be an active designer of this part of your life. And, you know, I speak in design language, so forgive me, but you don't have to be a passive part of this part of life. And I think I didn't understand this when my dad died. You know, I thought you'd just kind of hand yourself over to doctors and hope for the best. Um, and we design every other part of our life. You know, we design wh where we're going to work and who we end up with and where we're going to live. And yet when it comes to this part of life, we just kind of like leave it up to fate. And that just seems wrong to me. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that people, after reading the book, will feel like they can actually lean into this experience and be an active participant and feel some real agency in it. Like, I'm... I'm a co-creator of my life here. So, mm. and that's important to me. And I, and I, know, I now know how to do that. 
Fabulous. What I hear from both of you is practicality, comprehensiveness, and how about this? Great compassion. Mm. Great compassion. Thanks, Sid. Absolutely. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, finally. <laughs> right. Got that amen, finally. So now we're going to the audience. Please keep your questions short. Uh, we'd like for you to end your questions with a question mark, please. <laughs> so let's hear the first question. So thank you all for your time this evening. I'd just like to pick up on that last point of being in control of this conversation. Um, side note, you should sell your book to every wealth management advisor because <laughs> it's a great conversation that they should all be having with their clients. Um, but of that, to be in control of the conversation, do you talk at all about kind of self-directed suicide. So how do you have that conversation? What, what are the points where, cut me off, I don't want to be here anymore. Mm. And how do you have that conversation? I've had it with my girlfriends and friends, so they know when to put the stuff in my applesauce, but I'd love to hear your expert <laughs> guidance. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Thanks for that's a that's a big big subject. Thanks for bringing it up. It's on a lot of people's minds. I just sort of I'll come at it a few different ways. Um, one is so the language now around this is called we call it aid in dying or medically assisted dying. And you guys probably know in California is one of the states, and maybe there are up to a dozen or so now. Seven, not quite a dozen. Seven. Um, so, but there is something of a movement around sort of. Us, you know, the right to die movement, and it's state by state. Oregon was the first in 1997. California's been legal for a few years, but anyway, there's a big process to it, and you essentially you need to be terminally ill, and you need to prove that you're not that you're of sound mind, and there's a waiting period, and there's all this structure. Uh, but the end result, if you get through that structure, is you can get a prescription for a, a lethal dose of medication to end your life, explicitly to end your life. So this is a huge subject, and people feel very strongly about it in all directions. So I, part of what I would just simply say is an invitation for everyone here to think about what, what they would like. It's worth noting a few things, though. So one is, it's a symbolically is a huge, huge issue. It has implications for our systems, uh, our justice system, our healthcare system, etc. Um, a lot of doctors I know don't participate in this, and you can opt out as a physician. Um, they'll say, hey, okay, sure, my patient has the right, it's their body, but I can't participate. It is a big thing to ask someone to participating in ending your life. It's true. Um, so it's a huge symbolic issue, but it's still actually practically a pretty small one. In Oregon, for example, where all the data is from, you know, it's about 0.4% of deaths per year. So it's a relatively small number practically. But one thing that's really interesting to note is a lot of people who get that lethal dose of medication never actually use it. And back to the origin of this question, the, the, the therapy is just kind of knowing it's, you have a way out. If things get too hard, you've got this parachute in the medicine chest. And that seems to be so much of its therapeutic value. And therefore, it often is never actually used. So... Um, so that's sort of the sort of legal structure around what our states are providing for us now. It's still a hotly debated subject. Um, I guess I would also just encourage us all, and I, you know, it's also part of the advanced care planning conversation, which is we're asked to kind of imagine how we would feel were we in some future state. Now, I, in the disability world, it's a huge kind of issue. Um, like a lot of us who have become disabled, if you had asked us when we were able-bodied, could you live without three limbs or could you live with quadriplegia or whatever? We would say, hell no, I wouldn't want that. But then when we're in those shoes, we feel pretty different. So it's worth noting that this is a very dynamic subject and our feelings about our own death and our, what we're able to live with and not live with is a dynamic thing. So leave yourself plenty of room to change your mind. But most importantly is keep talking about it with someone so they can chart you over time. Anyway, there's, there's so much to say about this particular subject, but that's, a, that's an answer. Can I just add one thing? Um, I love the question, and I love that you said my girlfriend's going to put something in my applesauce, because I, I think that um, there's also, I think another thing that was a real education for me was understanding that you can have some say in this, even if you're not using an aid and dying program. So, 
you know, knowing what I now know, having seen my father die of dementia and having not asked him those questions beforehand, you know, what does quality of life look like for you? If you can no longer recognize us, do you still want to live? You know, if you can no longer read the four newspapers that you have, that you read every morning, does your life still feel like it has high, the quality that you want? And so, um, what I've now done is is turned around and written some pretty clear ex- instructions for my own family and said, look, if I can no longer recognize you and I can't eat a bagel and I can't go to the bathroom by myself, I want you to let whatever little virus comes my way just progress naturally, you know, and if, if I get pneumonia... I don't want to. I don't want you to call nine one one. I don't want to go to the hospital. I want you to keep me comfortable, and just let that progress. And that there, you know, there are people who can help you do that. You know, if you if you elect hospice soon enough, that will be supported. Um, and the problem is, is that people end up electing hospice so late in the game that they they can't fulfill those instructions. Um, you know, my dad was on hospice for like two days, mm-hmm. so. Anyway, there's a lot you can actually do um, to make sure that you have the quality of life you want until you die. Maybe I can even add one more thing because this brings up something. Like, just so you guys know, you don't ever, n- none of us, we all have the right to, to turn down any medical intervention. That's, as, as long as you're of sound mind, you have that. So, you, so on the spectrum from like living at all costs to wanting to hasten death, there's this gray, vast zone of palliation, of basically uh, of getting out of the way of death and letting it come when it's going to come. And when that's always within our rights. Yes. Next question? Yes. Um, I am Reverend Dr. Charlotte Myers, and I work for one of the largest hospice uh, providers that are here in the Bay Area. The question that you were just speaking to, the end-of-life option, is one in which you have to be able to take the medications yourself. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you do have to speak with your doctor. You have three different, op- uh, three different times that you can uh, make that choice with your doctor and then it's really up to you to make that decision about ending your life. But in hospice care, the thing I wanted to share with you is that there are five of us on every patient's team. So there is actually a team of people that takes care of people who, are, um, who have chosen to enter into hospice And when you choose to enter into hospice, you are making the decision that you no longer will have medical treatment. You have decided, as you were saying, that you will accept death as it comes. But what I specifically wanted to speak to is the issue of spiritual care. Mm. And that spiritual care counseling and grief counseling are clinical positions in the hospice system. And I don't think grief counseling and the standards of grief counseling, in, this is a very good book, by the way, and I'm not criticizing it. Mm. I'm simply saying I don't think it's here. Mm. And then... Um, The other thing is the spiritual care. On your team, you have a doctor, a nurse, you have a chaplain, a social worker, and you have a home health aide. So you have those five people that are taking care of you. The spiritual care is every bit as important as what the nurses do and what the doctors do. So... Just wanted to share that. (laughs) That'll get another amen. (laughs) Hello. Thanks for taking my question. It will be a question, I promise. Um, So I I live in uh, Oakland, where we're lucky to have decriminalization of some plant medicines. Um, It's very powerful to sit with people who get to practice dying 
And I'm wondering in this wonderful, very heavy book, which I haven't read yet, if there's the, the practical side of helping people who are alive and well deal with end-of-life anxiety. Mm. Good one. There's a, there is. There's, a, there's a, um, a chapter on coping, which is really about how to dance with fear. And we bounce off it as humans, and it's sort of the mother of all fears. And, and it's really, unlike so many other sort of fears or phobias, where the, you know, the fear of death is, as far as we can tell, really an invitation to come closer to it, actually not run away from it. And there's, that's sort of generally where the therapy begins. Um, but yeah, there's all sorts of ways. There are all sorts of... I don't know that we... Um, uh, We're not trying to necessarily take away fear or any feeling, um, but we counterpoint it. We buffer it. And uh, that's, I think, how we dance with fear. And very often, if you do that, if you accept that fear is part of the mix, sometimes it loses its its teeth. Um, If fear kind of becomes a companion among others, a feeling among others, then it loses its punch. And that's something to work with. That's something to diffuse over time. And you reference plant-based medicines and the resurgence of psychedelic-assisted therapy and psilocybin. I mean, it's a very interesting time right now on this front. And I think those, as you say, those offer a way to practice discombobulating, practice coming apart, you know, in a way. And so uh, there are chemicals that can be helpful to that end, but really, if you're paying attention, I mean, death is everywhere. And we are these, we're held together with duct tape and toothpicks generally as people. And, you know, if you're really paying attention, you know, you're falling apart and coming together all the time. Um, and we're very fluid, adaptive critters. So part of it is just sort of opening your eyes to that, de-shaming the fear so you don't hate yourself for being afraid, and then kind of work with it from there. And yes, it's in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Uh, first of all, thanks a lot for the beautiful insights you've been sharing with us. So I, I'm part of those type of people that are not very comfortable with letting go. Mm. Mm. And I'm very worried that when my parents will reach that point that apparently we will all reach at a moment or another, we might have a disagreement and they might say, if I reach that point, let me go, which as of today, I'll be like, yeah, sure, of course, I respect your will. But on the moment, emotion might kind of take over and I'll be like, no, 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 I'm not ready, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. So I don't know if you could have like any advice or insight or anything you could share. Thanks. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a big one. I mean, we, none of us are comfortable with letting go. And there were some really interesting stories that we heard um, when we wrote this book about that exact experience. Uh, our friend Rebecca Sudor, who's also in, in medicine, had a moment when she had to have this conversation with her grandparents. And she, her father was, was ailing and getting frail. And so she said... You know, I, I'm sorry, her grandfather. And so she said, Grandpa, I want to have this talk with you about you know, what you want at the end of life. And he was super clear about this. He was like, look, I've had a great life. I've had a beautiful marriage with your grandma. I feel very fulfilled. I don't want any heroics. You know, no, no pumping my chest. Don't try to revive me. Just when my time comes, just let me go. And then she turned to her grandmother and she said, Grandma, did you hear what Grandpa just said? And Grandma said, yes, I did. And she said, well, how do you feel about that? She said, nope. (laughs) (laughs) She said, I want them to do everything possible because just a minute more with him is so important to me. Mm. And then Rebecca turned back to Grandpa and she said, did you hear what Grandma just said? (laughs) And Grandpa said, yes, I did. And she said, well, how do you feel about that? He said, whatever she wants. (laughs) (laughs) So there it is, right? We exist in relationships. We're social beasts. Sometimes what our spouse or our sister or our brother or our children want is more important to us than what we want. And And our decisions change. It's an incredibly dynamic system we're living in. So I'd say just like allow space for that. Things are going to 
change and you know you may find it easier to let go if you see your parents suffering um you just you can't anticipate what that moment is going to hold so just allow it to be hello um thank you so much for the beautiful conversation um i have gotten a lot of um peace from studying how other cultures think about death who might have a more healthy relationship with mortality than our culture does. And, um, just for instance, like Dia de los Muertos, it's, um, I had just never seen death portrayed in such a celebratory way before. And it made me realize there are other ways to, to sort of approach the idea of death. Sorry, I'm breaking my own rule here. It's a long question. Um, but I, I guess to, to bring it back to, uh, to a question um, about our own society, um, how do you think we can sort of change the conversation and change the perspective on death to have a healthier relationship with it here, aside from writing a beautiful book that's very approachable? <laughs> well, I'll start. Yeah, thank you, Eva. I mean, we got a long way to go here. I think it's one of the, uh, for me, how um, uh, the U.S. handles aging, illness, death is a, is a real tell. It's, it sort of proves that we are a pretty young country. Um, uh, countries have been, as such, around longer, um, tend to do things a little differently. And what's the gist? I mean, I think we... I th- if you hold the view that death and life are at odds, are opposed... Then you're going to be you're kind of buying yourself that warring approach to the subject, and for some folks that's great. You know that's just I don't want to. We're not here to um, convince anybody to to change their mind or do differently or somehow love death. That's certainly not the the deal here. But the hope would be that we love life enough to include the whole shooting match of it. So I think. As soon as this country, and perhaps nights like this, I mean, the fact that you guys all came out for a conversation like this, you know, this is beautiful, and this is relatively novel and relatively new, so maybe things are changing. But I think first, let's, let's maybe, at least for me, it's very instructive to, to link living and dying, that they're part of this, that's a package deal. You don't get one without the other. And so once you sort of set that as, as your view of reality, and our healthcare system really needs to do this, that death is not at odds with living. Um, and once you, get th- once you get that, wrap your head around that, then, so then our systems and our structures and our policies can flow. So again, an answer to your question. It's a long game. But I think we're in the midst of it. This is our last audience question. Thank you, BJ and Shoshana and everyone. Um, my question is, I just graduated from college and a lot of young kids like me live YOLO. You only live once. <laughs> but how do young people keep death in mind? Like YODO, you only die once. How do we actually keep that mindset? <laughs> <laughs> but still live and thrive. <laughs> Can we just all initiate YODO? <laughs> no? Tonight, YODO is becoming a hashtag. Um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, so... <sighs> It's always too early to think about this stuff until it's too late. And, um, you know, there's so many life cycle moments when you can start thinking about this. So, for example, when you get your driver's license and you go to the DMV and it's the first time that you're asked, do I want to donate my organs in the case of death? Um, That's a pretty important decision, right? And everyone says that they want to be an organ donor and then very few people sign up for it. So that's a beautiful moment when people turn 16 to start thinking about it. You know, um, there's uh, Jessica Zitter, who's another Bay Area uh, palliative care physician and ER doc, talks about why don't we have death ed along with sex ed? Um, You know, why shouldn't we talk about all the important stuff in life? Um, so that's one thing. I think it's also important to note that when you turn 18, you are then a legal adult. And because of HIPAA privacy laws, 
your parents and your closest kin no longer have access to your medical records. So, you know, we heard a story about a woman whose uh, son, tragically at a frat party, fell out a window and, um, you know, became brain damaged. And she had a hard time getting any information from the docs about his medical records Mm -hmm. because she was not, she had not been appointed his healthcare agent even as his mother. Um, So that's another critical moment. So when you turn 18 with your kids, um, or when they turn 18 with your kids, you should have them make you their their healthcare agent. So there are all of these moments throughout life when we can start thinking about it. When you have a family, you know, you got to do a will and trust because at that moment, when you have children you have to think about who will be a guardian to them, who will take care of them if you're no longer there. Uh, So there are all these critical moments to think about it, and I really appreciate you bringing that up because I think young people do feel invincible um, and and tend to not think about these things. But it would be great if they did. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's also why this subject is very often, a lot of people come to this subject through meditation and vice versa. Somehow they're... Linked, and I think, uh, I think why they're linked is, is just basically around awareness. I don't, so however old or young you may be, again, if you're paying attention, death is everywhere. That leaf falling, check the bugs on your windshield. I mean, you are, it's just all over the place. Loss is in you, death of cells, cutting your nails, you name it. I mean, there's just, it's, there's ends and beginnings happening all around you. So another way in maybe is simply meditation, just simply being aware of life as it is. That can be very, a, a basic place to start. Wonderful conversations. So folks, we're at the point in our time together that we look at the wonderful, informed, traditional question. We ask all speakers this important question. So here we go. What is your 60-second idea to change the whole world? (laughs) Seriously? No pressure. None at all. Um, Okay. Okay, so I would say spend time with the dying and spend time with the sick. That has been a life-changing moment for me. So whether that's volunteering for hospice or just spending time with the people in your life who are are sick or dying, there is a moment of perspective that happens at the bedside that is really life-changing. Um, and, you know, we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, and I'm reminded of the astronaut experience, you know, when they rocketed out into orbit and for the first time saw this floating blue marble and took a picture of it and how that radically changed their perspective and our perspective as human beings about this little planet we live on, you know, and, and the astronauts will talk about how they thought to themselves, how can we possibly be at war with each other? How can we possibly be unkind to each other? You know, why aren't we taking care of each other and this planet? And that perspectival shift and that kind of cosmic right-sizing really happens when you watch someone die, too. You know, you realize what matters. You realize all the shit that doesn't matter. And you, you, you really rebalance So spend some time with the dying. That's my 60-second idea. All right. Uh, Mine is uh, no new ideas. Like a moratorium (laughs) on on new... (laughs) uh, No new stuff, no innovation. Like, let's actually work with all that we have and already know that we Mm. just kind of keep ignoring and trying to reinvent wheels. Like, can you imagine? Five-year moratorium, no new anything. (laughs) Uh, I think that will change the world. (laughs) Wow. Thank you, Shoshana. Thank you, BJ. What an exciting evening to hear from these incredible people. Can we just give them another hand? Please, please join them in the lounge.
Thank you, guys. There will be a signing of the book. Please join them in the lounge for this incredible book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Sin.